they've been married for 30 years. He's a pioneer of Catholic lay evangelization, and she has a master's degree in theology. Put on the coffee and get ready to open the scriptures. It's time for Bible with the Barbers. Now, here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Welcome, welcome to Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, November the 18th, 2022. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for all the radio stations that pick up our signal. Thank you for all of our supporters, for those of you who donate with your money, your time, your talents, those who offer their sufferings and their prayers for us. We couldn't do this work without you, and we can't do this work without God's help, and that's what this is about. We want to evangelize all of those that we can evangelize and um, let everyone know the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. We ask the angels to join us here. Sanctus, 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 Dominus Deus Sabaoth, Plenis Uncelia Terra, Gloria Tua, Hosanna in Excelsis. Benedictus, qui venit in nomine Domini, Hosanna in Excelsis. So this week I had an app listener question that I got to. I don't know if it was sent this week. I've been a little bit behind. I get busy when we have our grandson full-time, and so it's, sometimes I don't get to the questions right away. But I do try and get to your questions. If you've had questions, please, and I didn't answer them, please just send them again. So I thank our app listeners for their questions because often their questions become very instructive for me. I learn new things in answering your questions, so thank you. Um, and the question had to do with um, that she put her children into a Christian school because there's no Catholic school in the area, and the teacher said that... Um, you know, these Catholics, you know, you don't have to go to Mass every Sunday. You shouldn't have to worship every Sunday. Where, where does it say that in the Bible, that you have to do this? So we want to address that question. Where does it say in the Bible that we are supposed to worship every week? Well, it's interesting. Actually, um, we can start at the Ten Commandments. What is the Third Commandment? Remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. And it's interesting. There is, in our day and age, a group of Protestants, the Seventh-day Adventists, and they believe that that Keep holy the Sabbath day means literally the seventh day of the week, the day on which the Lord rested when he made the first creation. And so they still observe the Sabbath. Well, where do Christians, and by the way, you know, 75% of Christians go believe that Sunday is the Lord's day and that we should be assisting at public worship on Sunday. So where do they get this idea? How far back does this go? So we want to talk about this, and we want to, um, you know, realize what you know what what is going on, and and is it important to keep the Ten Commandments? And you know, there there are people nowadays who say, well, you know, Jesus did away with the Old Testament; we don't need it. Well, no, Jesus said that um, a man came up to him saying, "Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life?" And Jesus said to him, "If you would enter life, keep." the commandments, <laughs> Matthew 19, 16, and 17. And Jesus also said, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, he didn't do away with the 10 commandments. There were things in the old law that were provisional. And we learned that from reading the New Testament, from reading the writings of the apostles and the, you know, St. Paul's letters, especially, where he tells us that circumcision and the animal sacrifices and even the temple was provisional. Why? Well, you know, we believe that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies, that everything in the Old Testament points to Christ, leads us to Jesus Christ, okay? 
um, everything in the Old Testament was a preparation for his coming to prepare us to receive him, okay? So we have, we, we believe we have to keep the Ten Commandments. And yes, the Ten Commandments, the Third Commandment says, remember to keep holy the Sabbath day or the Lord's day. Since the Ten Commandments express man's fundamental duties toward God and toward his neighbor, the Ten Commandments reveal in their primordial content grave obligations, all ten of them, grave obligations. They are fundamentally immutable, and they oblige always and everywhere. No one can dispense from them. No one can dispense from them. The Ten Commandments are engraved by God in the human heart. And you can look at the, par- the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2072. So the Third Commandment, it's immutable. We can't change it. God said it. Keep holy the Lord's day. So what is, what is the Lord's day? What, what happens here? So the Third Commandment is fundamentally immutable because it is one of the ten which Jesus said we must follow to attain everlasting life. However, the Catholic Church teaches the particular day we celebrate in keeping the third commandment to be ceremonial or an accidental component of the law that is changed, challengeable, changeable. And this is, this is how the catechism puts it. So just bear with me here to, to explain this. Sunday is expressly distinguished from the Sabbath, which it follows chronologically every week. For Christians, its ceremonial observance replaces that of the Sabbath. In Christ's Passover, Sunday fulfills the spiritual truth of the Jewish Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath was to enter into God's rest. Well, Sunday was the day the Lord rose from the tomb. Those who lived according to the old order of things have come to a new hope, no longer keeping the Sabbath, but now they keep the Lord's Day. The celebration of Sunday observes the moral commandment inscribed by nature in the human heart to render to God an outward, visible, public, and regular worship. Sunday worship fulfills the moral command of the Old Covenant taking up its rhythm and spirit in the weekly celebration of the creator and redeemer of his people, paragraphs 21, 75, and 76 of the Catechism. So Sunday replaces the old Sabbath. The Sabbath was the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day when he made the first creation. But remember, when Jesus comes, he makes a new creation. He renews creation. He recapitulates all things in himself. Christ recapitulates everything in himself. And so the, the Sabbath now, beca- the Lord's day becomes the day on which we worship, the day Jesus rose from the dead. And is there, now, is there any biblical data for this? I mean, did early Christians worship on the first day? Is there anywhere, anywhere in the Bible that even hints at this? Well, actually, yes, there is. There is, and we want to look at that. Okay. First of all, St. Paul tells us that the ceremonial aspects of the old law, the Sabbath day itself, is no longer binding for Christian faithful. In, one, in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. 
but the substance belongs to Christ. So Christ is the substance of the law, the man, the man God, the God made man. He's the substance of the new law, and it is in him that everything is fulfilled. He recapitulates all things in himself. So yes, the Lord's day takes precedence over the Sabbath in the new creation. Clearly, the Sabbath is a mere shadow that is fleeting by nature. And shadow, the Greek word skion, is the same word used by the inspired author of the letter of Hebrews for the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant, also no longer binding on Christians. For since the law, having but a shadow of the good things to come and not the exact image of the objects, is never able to by the sacrifices which they offer continually year after year, the same, to perfect those who draw near, Hebrews 10.1. So it wasn't the old law that perfected people. It's Christ in the new law who will perfect us, perfect us with his grace and his mercy, and he will bring us to union with his Father. So when Paul teaches that Christians do not have to keep the Sabbath, he speaks of the holy days that were specific to the Jews. He is not saying, and he does not say, that we do not have to keep holy any day, that there isn't a specific day that we're not supposed to keep holy. In context, Paul is, remember he was dealing with the Judaizers, those who wanted to impose the entire um, Old Testament Jewish um, law that wasn't just Old Testament but had other laws added onto it by the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. So they, they wanted to impose all that on the Gentiles, okay, and make them be circumcised and keep the old covenant law. But this had all passed away with the coming of our Lord. And that would include the Sabbath and the other holy days, the new moons, the festivals, the Sabbaths. In order to be saved, some overlook the fact when they use Paul's epistle to the Romans against the necessity of keeping the third commandment, okay, As for man who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not dispute over opinions. One believes he may eat anything while the weak man eats only vegetables. One man esteems one day as better than another, while another man esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. He who also eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Romans 14, 1 through 6. So, you know, there were lots of controversies there in the few decades of the church history. The question of the Jewish-Gentile relations with the church and the law, it was a hot topic. Remember, they had to have a council in Jerusalem to settle this in the Acts of the Apostles. As long as the temple was standing, Christians of Jewish descent were free to attend the temple. And certain aspects of the old law, as long as they did not teach these things to be essential for salvation. So the Jewish converts to Christianity were allowed to keep some of the practices that they had had before Jesus came, as long as they didn't impose them on the Gentile converts. So we're going to continue with this and looking at the New Testament and where do we find references in the New Testament to Christians gathering on the first day of the week, not on the Sabbath, to worship and carry out the Lord's Don't go away. We'll be back. Thank you for joining us. Please let your friends and family know that there's a Bible study.
Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. So we want to look at the letter to the Hebrews here about the Sabbath. And, and Hebrews um, 9, 4, excuse me, Hebrews 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place he said, they shall never enter into my rest. By the way, that's Psalm 95, 11, verse 11. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he sets a certain day. Period, comma. Today. Today is the day. Saying through David so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, Today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Psalm 95, 7 and 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later of another day. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever enters God's rest ceases also from his labors, as God did from his. And so in this context, are we saying that there's no day on which we have to specifically worship God? No day that we have to set aside to keep the third commandment? Is that what God was doing here? Well, what is the Sabbath rest? What is this certain day? In Hebrews, it is not so much a day as a person, Jesus Christ. Okay, in the letters of Hebrews, it becomes evident that that they're speaking of, the letter is speaking of Jesus. Okay, the fulfillment is in Jesus. All right. But um, so, but that discussion of the day of the entering into God's rest disappears into the discussion in the letter of Hebrews about the great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Look at Hebrews four fourteen and following. So it is Jesus Christ himself who actualizes the rest that was merely foreshadowed by the, the Sabbath. Okay, so we the so Sabbath was a foreshadowing of Jesus. So does that mean obviously we don't have any day on which that we that, that we are bound? Well, maybe partially, but here's the deal: Jesus' fulfillment of the Sabbath rest, in the sense he he fulfills it in this sense that he actualizes the Sabbath, the rest that the Sabbath symbolizes. Jesus Christ himself teaches us how to enter into rest in God, how to enter into that union with God. And in Hebrews 10, 1 through 26, we see a movement towards tagging on the church as the fulfillment of all that was merely a shadow of the old covenant. So in the letter of Hebrews, Paul points out that the church itself that Jesus founded is a fulfillment of all the shadows, okay? And it's not, not Jesus Christ in the abstract, okay? It's not some, you know. And this makes sense only when we understand that the church is the body of Christ or Christ himself extended into the world. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. He is the head of the body, which is the church. So the church is the living body of Christ in the world. It's his, it's it's himself. It's Christ extending himself into the world and continuing to work in, in the world through his church. In Hebrews 10, 1, we have, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, 
Instead of the true form of the realities, it can never made perfect those who drew near. So the old law couldn't perfect anyone. But Jesus Christ perfects us. He perfects us in grace. He perfects us in his love. Okay? And then we have what? In Hebrews um, 10, that Christ has opened the way. That through his flesh, he has opened for us the curtain. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. This is in the letter to Hebrews. Paul is saying, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. For if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So as Christians, we enter into the sanctuary through baptisms. Our bodies are washed with pure water. And the Eucharist is his flesh and thus enters the necessity of the church, the sacraments. But Christ established his church. It's not because we were so smart as to think, oh, we need a church. No, God established his church. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes when we look at Jesus Christ, we look at him as if he existed in a void. He didn't exist in a void. He came down out of heaven. He was born into the Jewish community. The, remember, the religion of the Old Testament that God established, God's religion that he established among men, was the Jewish religion. And its, its purpose, as it was, was a shadow to point to the church and its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. So Christ is fulfilling what was foretold in the old okay but he's not he's not annihilating the old there were some things that were provisional provisional excuse me provisional and and a shadow of something new to come but not everything was provisional in the old law okay so we look at what was provisional and we realize that we can um we don't need, we don't have to have circumcision anymore. We don't have to have animal sacrifice anymore. We don't have to follow the dietary laws of the old law. But the Ten Commandments were not provisional. They're absolutely necessary. So we follow the Third Commandment. And it's interesting because the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 2178 tells us that the practice of the Christian assembly dates from the beginning of the apostolic age. All right? So you can look at Acts 2, 42 through 46, and 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, which I'll go, we'll do those in a minute. The letter to the Hebrews reminds faithful not to neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another. Tradition preserves the memory of an ever-timely exhortation. Come to the church early, approach the Lord and confess your sins, repent in prayer. Be present at the sacred divine liturgy, conclude its prayer, and do not leave before the dismissal. We have often said, this day is given to you for prayer and rest. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. <clears throat> and that's from a sermon, an ancient sermon, ancient Christian sermon. <clears throat> and so we meet publicly to honor the Lord's day. We honor the Lord's day by meeting publicly in church. 
So the Sabbath as the seventh day of the week is not no longer fulfills the command of the Lord to honor the Lord's day. It's the first day of the week that God has sanctified, that Jesus Christ sanctified by his resurrection. And it is in Christ that we honor the first day of the week. So when we see the Christians meeting to worship the Lord in the scriptures, to receive communion, take up collections, in Acts 27 and in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, both of those talk about the first day of the week. <clears throat> so Acts 20, verse 7, I think I, yeah, Acts 27, and it says what? Here it is right here. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. By the way, the breaking of the bread was code word for the Eucharist. It was code word for um, <clears throat> Jesus, the Last Supper. It was code word for the Last Supper. And then in 1 Corinthians, first, first letter of the Corinthians, 16.2, we have another reference to Christians meeting on the first day of the week. <clears throat> so, um, on the first day of every week, each of you should put something aside and shore it up as he may prosper so that the contribution need not be made when I come. So every, on, when they gathered together on the first day of the week, Paul was telling them, then you take up a collection then. All right? So in, and then we also have in Acts 2.46... We have a description of the early Christian community, and it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook food with glad and generous hearts. So the breaking of the bread was that code word for Eucharist. Okay, Remember in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, um, when the two apostles are leaving Jerusalem and they're going to Emmaus because they thought Jesus was the Messiah and then he was crucified, and now people are saying he's risen from the dead and they're all distraught and... And Jesus appears with them and he walks with them and he goes to Amos and Amos, he, he has on the way, he opens the scriptures to them and he shows them the Messiah had to suffer. He, he gives you all the Old Testament prophecies. He's giving them, wouldn't you have loved to have been walking with the apostles on the road to Amos? Read the Old Testament, read the, read the prophets. And so um, when they get there, he pretends like he's going on and they invite him to stay and he stays. And then when they're at table, he breaks, he blesses the bread and breaks it. Only the way it's described is directly connected with the Eucharist, with the Last Supper, what he did at the Last Supper, where he consecrated the bread and wine and changed them into his own body and blood. In the breaking of the bread, their eyes were open and they recognized them. See Luke 24, 30-31. And so... We have this encounter, and it was on the first day of the week. Remember, there, it's the first day. It's Easter Sunday, and they're leaving. So it was on the first day of the week, and it's in the breaking of the bread that they actually recognize Jesus. So on the Sabbath, when we gather to break bread, instead of breaking of bread in Luke 24, Paul never says, Paul never refers to on the Sabbath when we break bread. He says, 
Instead, he says the breaking of bread. Okay, so he doesn't use the phrase on the Sabbath. It's important to remember that when we talk about biblical churches, we mean the designated homes for the church gathering and specifically for the breaking of bread. In the early church, they didn't have churches yet. Remember, they were Jews. The first converts were Jews. And so they met in homes. For in the first place, when you assemble as a church, and this is from 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen through 23, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead and eats his own meal. One is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink? Or you despise the church of God? Or do you despise the church of God? For I receive from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And then following, and then Paul follows, and he talks about the institution of the Eucharist. This is my body, which is given up for you. This is the chalice of my blood, which is shed for you. So yeah, the early Christians met on the first day of the week. And they met in their homes to break bread, to carry out the Last Supper, what Jesus did at the Last Supper, which was the Eucharist, the institution of the Eucharist, where he changed bread and wine into his own body and blood. Don't go away. We will be back with more exciting revelations of the of what the Eucharist is. Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Thank you. Thank you for joining us here on Bible with the Barbers on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And we are talking about the fact that... Um, Yes, there is a specific day of the week on which Christians should gather in public worship of God. And um, in paragraph 1343 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it reads, It is above all on the first day of the week, Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection, that Christians met to break bread. Acts 27. We've already gone over that passage. From that time on down to our own, the day, own day, excuse me, our own day, the celebration of the Eucharist has been continued so that today we encounter it everywhere in the church with the same fundamental structure. It remains the center of the church's life. Remember, the Eucharist was established by Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. And then we have some other paragraphs of the Catechism that explain why the resurrection the Lord's day is the resurrection, okay? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We read in uh, Psalm 118, 24. Paragraph 2174, Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Because of it, because of, because it is the first day, the day of Christ's resurrection recalls the first creation, because it is the eighth day following the Sabbath, it symbolizes the new creation ushered in by Christ's resurrection. For Christians, it becomes the first day of all days, the first of all feasts, the Lord's Day, Sunday. We gather on the day of the sun, for it is the first day after the Jewish Sabbath, but also the first day when God separated matter from darkness made the world, and on this same day, Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. That is from St. Justin Martyr's Apology. You can read that. They, Justin Martyr was an early father of the church, um, early, early second century, 
okay? And already he's saying the Christians are meeting on Sunday. He's, he's explaining to the Romans. He's a, you know, explaining to the Romans the Christian faith. Then paragraph 2175, Sunday is expressly distinguished from the Sabbath. Remember the old Sabbath, the Seventh-day Adventists think we have to worship on Saturday because the Lord's, remember to keep holy the Sabbath. Sunday is expressly distinguished from the Sabbath, which it follows chronologically every week. For Christians, its ceremonial observance replaces that of the Sabbath. So our Sunday observance replaces the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath of the old clock was a shadow. It was a, a a type. It was pointing toward fulfillment in Christ. In Christ's Passover, Sunday fulfills the spiritual truth of the Jewish Sabbath and announces man's eternal rest in God. For worship under the law prepared the mystery of Christ, and what was done there prefigured some of the aspects of Christ. 1 Corinthians, compare 1 Corinthians 10, 11. And then there's a quote from Ignatius of Antioch, again, a martyr, an early martyr of the church, martyred in the early second century. Ignatius of Antioch, I believe. Yeah, Ignatius of Antioch was martyred early in the second century. Those who lived according to the old order of things have come to a new hope and no longer keeping the Sabbath, but the Lord's day in which one's, in which our life is blessed by him and by his death. So it's the Lord's Day now that Christians are keeping. And this is early on, okay? And I have one that goes even further uh, to come to still. So the celebration of Sunday observes the moral commandment inscribed by nature in the human heart to render to God an outward, visible, public, regular worship as a sign of his universal benefice to all. Sunday worship fulfills the moral command of the Old Covenant, taking up its rhythm and spirit in the weekly celebration of the creator and redeemer of his people. So Sunday fulfills that Sabbath obligation for those Seventh-day Adventists who didn't understand that, but also for us Christians, that yes, there's a specific day and we're supposed to worship, and it's Sunday, just like we're not supposed to forget that Jesus died on the cross and we honor that. We're not supposed to forget that he rose from the dead, and Sunday is a very specific day that's honored and set aside as a day of worship for God. Now, you say, well, some, some people might object. Well, now you've left the, the scriptures and you've gone to the catechism. Well, yes, I have. Because which came first, the Bible or the church? The church came first. Jesus Christ established his church, and it was the bishops of the Catholic Church who told us which books, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, told us which books were the, the actual canon of scripture. So it is the church that gives us the Bible. And so the church is the authentic interpreter of the Bible. And the early Christians, remember, Jesus Christ didn't just, you know, it wasn't, he didn't just, in the Old Testament, think about it, God established the ancient Jewish religion as a foreshadowing of his church. And he gave specific instructions, how to build the temple, how to carry out worship, how to ordain the priests, how the priests were supposed to act, what they were supposed to do. Okay. Do you think that Jesus didn't give these specific instructions to his apostles? Are they all written in scripture? No, they're not all written in scripture. Why? Well, because they're not. And, and Paul says that. He says, hold fast to the traditions I have handed on to you, whether by word of mouth or in writing. So through the sacred liturgy, through the celebration of the sacraments that Christ had established, 
The church passes on everything that Christ gave, including the Eucharist. And at the Last Supper, what did Jesus do? He took bread and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And he said over a chalice of wine, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant, which is given for you, will be shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So, and you can look that up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in all three gospels, um, the last supper. Well, Jesus is God. When he speaks the word, it happens. When Jesus commanded the storm to stop, did it stop? Yes. When he commanded the loaves and the fishes to be sufficient to feed 5,000 people, five loaves and two fish, did it happen? Yes. And he did, there were two separate instances, one where he fed 5,000 and one where he fed 4,000. And he multiplied and there was a lot left over. And it wasn't a, a miracle of generosity. It was a miracle of God commanded. Jesus' word has power. He commands the elements. Did he have power over his own body? He rose from the dead, didn't he? Yes, he did. And he commanded, he had power over illness. He had power over sickness, blindness, lameness, deafness. He healed the sick and the good news was preached to the poor. And he rose from the dead. So when he says, this is my body, which is given for you, he didn't say this is a symbol. And how do we know it wasn't a symbol? Go to John 6. When Jesus speaks in John 6 that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood or you will have no life in you, the word, you must gnaw on my flesh. And some of his disciples said, this is a hard saying. Who can endure this? And they left him. If he had been speaking symbolically, he would have had an obligation to tell them, I'm only speaking symbolically. He was speaking literally, I will give you my flesh to eat. His risen, ascended, glorified flesh. In the Holy Eucharist, Christ comes to us under the appearance of bread and wine. Remember, he is the victim who immolated himself, who's no longer dying, but lives for all eternity as active immolated love. How do we know that? Revelation 5. In Revelation 5, what do we see? Remember? The, the scroll that nobody could open because there was no one worthy in heaven and on earth. And John was crying because he had this sense that the, the knowledge the scroll contained was desirable and he's weeping copious tears. And the angel says, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And John turns and he sees a lamb standing, looking as though it had been slain. And the lamb is Christ the Lord. Yes, we know this. Remember in John's gospel, Look, there is the Lamb of God. John the Baptist points out Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God. The ancient Jewish Passover was a foreshadowing of Christ's Paschal mystery, his entire Paschal mystery, where his whole life, all of his sufferings, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into glory, he is the Lamb who for all eternity stands in the Father's presence in Revelation 5, offering himself as the victim on behalf of all sinners to make up for our sins so that we can give up our sins and do penance for our sins and turn to him and live. And so Sunday is the day when Christ rose from the dead. That's the day that since the early church, 
Christians have observed as the Lord's Day. And there's an early, early, early ancient Christian writing called the Didache. And it is the, um, the Didache is the, um, it was the instruction of the 12. It is believed to have been written in 70 AD, although modern scholars want to date it later than that, just like modern scholars want to date the Gospels later than that. Um, the Didache, again, I'm going to extra biblical sources, but I'll explain that, please God, before the end of this show. Okay, in the Didache, Christians are told to gather on the first day and to offer, um, I have it here and I can't find the exact quote. It's here, I'll find it. Anyway, so we'll, we'll digress for a moment to, um, to speaking of why do we go to extra biblical sources to explain things in the Bible? Well, for one, how does anyone know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John wrote their gospel? None of the four gospel writers signed the gospel with their name. There's nowhere in the gospel of Matthew that says Matthew wrote this gospel. There's nowhere in the gospel of Luke that says Luke wrote this gospel. There's nowhere in the gospel of Mark that says Mark wrote this gospel. Now, John is different. He doesn't say John wrote this gospel. He said the disciple who laid his head on Christ's breast at the Last Supper. And that was John. So we know. So I hear the music and we're coming to a break. So we'll go back to that. And we'll um, look at the extra biblical sources and why we go to them. And then I'll explain about the Didache. And we're going to have to wrap this up. And it just was too, I'm having too much fun. I hope you are too. Tell your friends and family to join us on Bible with Barbers on Virgin Now, back to Bible with the Barbers. If you have a question or comment, call 888-526-2151. Here's Terry and Mary Danielle. Thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers on this Friday, November the 18th. Hey, next week is Thanksgiving. (laughs) So, we're talking about the Mass, and why do we go to Mass on Sunday, and do we have to go to Mass on Sunday? Is this, an, is, is this something that Jesus wanted? Did he want the Eucharist celebrated continually every week, or maybe even every day? Well, in the early Christian church, according to the Scriptures, the Eucharist was celebrated every day. They met daily in their homes for the breaking of the bread. And again, I've already explained the breaking of the bread was code word for the Last Supper, the Eucharist. That they're changing the priest being able to change the body and blood, the, the bread and wine into the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We believe it is his resurrected, ascended and glorified body, blood, soul and divinity. And because Christ has power over nature and over his own body, that he could do this. And when God speaks the word, it happens. And that it is Christ who acts in and through the priest. And we get this from the early church. This is from the early church, from the earliest days, okay? Why do we go to extra biblical sources? And I was explaining before the break that Matthew, Mark, Luke, none of them say that they wrote their Gospels. How do we know that Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, and Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke? Well, because we have um, a treatise (laughs) and the ancient writings of the ancient um, Christian writings from the first century that explain that Matthew wrote his gospel in Aramaic while Peter and Paul were in Rome laying the foundations of the church there. 
that upon their departure, Mark wrote the gospel as it had been preached by Peter. Luke wrote the gospel as it had been preached by, by Paul, and later John wrote his gospel. And of course, we know that John actually says that, you know, an eyewitness gives this account, and he, he, he refers to himself as the one who laid his head on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper. So we know that's the Apostle John. So we have that. We have the witness of the early fathers of the church. And this is one of the things that, you know, we have a lot of Protestant ministers in the 20th century and, you know, throughout time. I mean, you had the, the um, Oxford movement when St. John Henry Newman became Catholic in the 1800s. And then in the 1900s, you had a lot of Protestant ministers um, becoming Catholic and they were doing it through their study of scripture. And they were discovering that the Protestant interpretation of scripture never even existed until after the Protestant revolt in the 1500s and that it went against everything that all Christianity had believed up until the 1500s. So that, that people went to mass on Sunday was always observed that people worshiped on Sunday was observed by all Christians. And even after the Protestant revolt, it was still observed as Sunday was the Lord's day it's always been observed. Yes, there, you had to have a specific day on which you worship the Lord in public, a public worship. But one of those ancient Christian writings that I want to refer to is the Didache, and that's supposed to have been written in AD 70, although, as I said, some modern scholars want to date it later, but some modern scholars also want to date the Gospels later. But there's internal evidence from every single Gospel that they were all written before the fall of Jerusalem. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's internal evidence that all four Gospels, the fourfold Gospels, that all facets of the Gospel, the one Gospel of Jesus Christ that has four facets, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written before the fall of Jerusalem. But in the Didache, it says this, okay? The Didache refers to the Eucharist as thusia, the Greek term for sacrifice. Assemble on the Lord's Day and break bread and offer the Eucharist but first make confession of your faults so that your sacrifice may be a pure one. Anyone who has a difference with his fellow is not to take part with you until they have been reconciled. So avoid any profanation of your sacrifice. For this is the offering of which the Lord has said, everywhere and always bring me a sacrifice that is undefiled, for I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is the wonder of the nations. That's from Malachi 1.11. And that the fathers of the church said that that was fulfilled by Jesus Christ's sacrifice, his one sacrifice. And I want to point something else out about that. Why, you know, did Jesus intend for his sacrifice to be continued? Well, during the Last Supper, Jesus said to his disciples, do this in memory of me. In Greek, this statement reads, and I'm not going to read the Greek. Do this in memory of me, okay? Um, but the Greek words there, there are two aspects of this phrase that deserve consideration. For one, the phrase to-u-to, to-u-to, poi-ete, can be translated as do this or offer this. In the Old Testament, God commands the Israelites, you shall offer upon the altar two lambs, poesis. This use of poen is translated as offer this or sacrifice this over 70 times in the Old Testament. 
So the same word that is used for sacrifice under the old covenant is used for the sacrifice of the mass in the new. Okay, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Then the second key aspect of the Lord's phrase is the word anamnesin. If you were to to ask a Protestant to look in the Greek translation of his Bible, every time the word anamnesis appears, it is within a sacrificial context. It also can be translated a memorial offering or memorial sacrifice. Another New Testament passage that testifies to the sacrificial nature of the Mass is 1 Corinthians 10, 14-21. Here Paul argues that participation in the Lord's table means refusing to participate in the sacrifices of demons. Paul contrasts the two groups. The first are those who participate in one altar, the table of demons, eating the sacrifice and drinking the cup of demons. The second are those who partake in the table of the Lord, which according to Malachi 1.7 is synonymous with an altar of sacrifice, the table of the Lord, synonymous with sacrifice, and drink from the cup of the Lord. Paul's argument is based upon the parallelism between demonic sacrifice and Christian sacrifice. Hebrews 13.10 follows this thought, saying that we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have a right to eat. The Jewish priest in the Old Testament served the tent. How do we know it was intended for a memorial to be repeated? Well, in the Old Testament, the foreshadowing of Christ's Paschal mystery was the Passover of the Jews. And when the Jews were commanded to keep the Passover, Moses was told that this feast would be kept as a memorial Passover in perpetuum. And the word that is the words that are used, it was a memorial that didn't just remember something of the past, but in some mysterious way made present in the present time that past action. So as Catholic Christians, we don't believe that we crucify Christ again, but we do believe that Christ commanded us to keep the Last Supper as a perpetual memorial. Do this in remembrance of me, not remembering me, but to make present in the present what I have done for you here and now. And that somehow Christ, because he is God and he is now risen and ascended and glorified, acts in and through his priest in a mysterious manner to confect the Eucharist, to make present to us himself, not only under the appearance of bread and wine so we can receive him in Holy Communion, but the whole liturgy of heaven, Revelation 4 and 5, where God is worshiped, all of Revelation, where the wedding feast of the Lamb, is made present to us, and heaven and earth are united in a single act, the act of perfect worship that the letter to Malachi, I mean, excuse me, the, the, the prophecy of Malachi spoke about, okay? So there are church fathers that um, talk about this special celebration where that's talked about in Malachi, where a perfect offering may be made, and, and um, at Irenaeus in his Adverse Heresies talks about this. He took from among creation that which is bread and gave thanks, saying, This is my body. The cup, the cup likewise, which is from among creation, to which we belong, he confessed to be his blood. Jesus Christ did. He taught the new sacrifice of the new covenant of which Malachi 
one of the twelve minor prophets, as signified beforehand. He makes it plain that the former people will cease to make offering to God, but that in every place sacrifice will be offered to him, and indeed a pure one, for his name is glorified among the Gentiles. Okay? And then we have, um, from the Didache, of course, we have from, uh, excuse me, after the Didache, we have Clement of Rome saying, Our sin will not be small if we eject from the episcopate those who blamelessly and holily have offered its sacrifices. Blessed are those presbyters who have already finished their course and obtained a fruitful and perfect release. Their sacrifices. The presbyters, they offer a sacrifice. Every priest is offered, every priest is ordained to offer sacrifice, the book of Hebrews says. And then we have the letter to the uh, Philadelphians written about A.D. 110. And that is um, John, um, a bishop and disciple of John wrote, Make certain, therefore, that you all observe one common Eucharist, for there is one body of our Lord Jesus Christ, and but one cup of union with his blood, and one single altar of sacrifice, even as there is also one bishop with his clergy, and my fellow um, servitors, the deacons, this will ensure that all you're doing are in full accord with the will of God. And Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trifo talks about Malachi's prophecy saying, God speaks by the mouth of Malachi, one of the 12 minor prophets, as I said before, about the sacrifice at the time presented by you. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord, and I will not accept your sacrifice at your hand. For from the rising of the sun to going down of the same, my name has been glorified among the Gentiles. In every place, incense is offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name is great among the Gentiles. He then speaks of those Gentiles, namely us Christians, who in every place offer sacrifice to him, that is the bread of the Eucharist and also the cup of the Eucharist. So the early church believed that we were to perpetuate the sacrifice of Christ and his offering, his one offering of himself once for all in a bloody manner, but that he makes a perpetual memorial of in a mystical way in the sacraments, in the sacramental way. So yes, we are supposed to gather for worship, and yes, there is definitely biblical evidence for it, and by the way, keeping the third commandment is a very strong evidence for it, and that the church has always done this from the very earliest days is a great argument for it. So remember to know your faith and to study your faith, and, and don't be afraid when people ask you questions, and if you don't know, don't be afraid to say, you know what, I'm going to try and find out. I'm going to look it up and try and find it out. Thank you for joining us on Bible with the Barbers on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you to the radio stations who pick up our signal. And please share Bible with the Barbers with all your friends and family and everybody you know. Tell them there's a Catholic Bible study on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Have a happy Thanksgiving. May God bless you and your families. And may you find the joy of our Lord Jesus Christ and live in his peace.